Thanks for joining me today, Maya. Appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me here. So let's start from the beginning. Uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in rural Washington state, so just south of the Canadian border and quite near the coast. Oh, nice. Is that, um, so you, I've been up to like Forks and I've been down to, I guess, like Vancouver, right? Where were you in relation to those? Yeah, well, I was outside of Bellingham. So it's about 90 miles north of Seattle. Oh, cool. Nice. And where are you now? Very close. So at the moment, I'm actually uh, spending COVID time in uh, Skagit County, which is just south of Bellingham. Um, so a little bit closer to Seattle uh, and close to all my family. Nice. And I saw you were recently in New York. Do you still have an apartment there? Yes. Or are you done I with do New still York? have an apartment there. <laughs> yes, I recently. So I was in San Francisco for 10 years and just moved to New York um, when the whole world kind of came crashing down. So since I've been working from home all day, um, I came here to, to kind of shelter out the COVID times because there's a lot more space. I'm in this like beautiful apartment. Um, I spend all day, every day at home. And now I don't know what the future looks like. It's hard to plan. Understandable. So are you, you have your own place there or you're staying with family or what's the situation? I have, it's kind of a perfect situation actually. So my sister has an apartment that she normally rents out on Airbnb. And so I'm staying in that apartment, right? And it's kind of a win-win scenario because fewer people are traveling on Airbnb and I needed some place that I could move in. So it's like all furnished and all decorated and stuff like that. I just showed up with my suitcase. Nice. That's a pretty great setup. What took you from San Fran to New York? You know, I needed, it's like I needed a change of scenery. I had always wanted to live in New York and there was always something keeping me in San Francisco, mostly running companies there. And for the first time, I realized that I didn't need to be in San Francisco. And so I wanted to take, a, take the chance to live in New York. And I love, it's like, I love so much about New York and I love cities. Like I'm a real city person and New York is the best city. It's a, it's a hyper-functional city in comparison to San Francisco. Um, and I love public transportation and I love walking and I love um, coffee shops and restaurants and things like that. And so, yeah, I just wanted to live there. Nice. I lived in New York for three years. I moved away two years ago. And I just, nothing compares to New York anymore. I'm in Boston now and I'm constantly comparing Boston to New York and it's not nice to Boston. Totally, right? And like Boston, right? Like I live, I live in Cambridge. It's fine, right? But it's just what you're saying. Like you just can't compare it to New York. Yeah, I miss it. (laughs) Uh, So let's see, your family, you said is near there in Washington? Yeah. So my whole family lives in Washington state. Um, So my dad is in Bellingham. My sister's out on Samish Island, which is beautiful Salmon Islands. My mom is um, east in the woods. And then my brother lives south in kind of a suburb of Seattle. So I'm sort of surrounded by everyone in my family um, um, right now. And they've lived here forever. I was always, they were like, we don't know. Like Maya lives in California. We don't know why. We don't know what she's doing there. Uh, I was always a strange one that that lived outside the state. How did you end up in San Fran? Was it for school or for companies? The internet, right? Like I, I grew up even on the internet and enmeshed in internet startups. I love startups. I love new projects. I love trying, like I remember trying um, all the new browsers that existed, right? In the browser wars. And I was big on eBay and I used Game Never Ending. And I was one of the first users of Flickr. And I was really 
um, in that world. And so I actually, I went to college um, in Boston, as many people do. And after my freshman year, I had an internship in San Francisco, which makes sense. That's like where all the things that I like were located. And then once I got there, I was just like, this is amazing. This is exactly what I want to do with my life. And, um, and I didn't go back to school for a while after I, I kind of took some time off to stay out there. Nice. It has like a very specific energy there. And that's the great thing about New York and San Fran to me is they, they have their own. Uh, so college, where'd you go? Um, how do you like it? And I believe you're still involved. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So I went to, um, it's a very unique school. So called the Franklin W. Olin College of Engineering. It is only engineering. They only do engineering degrees. Um, it's very small. There's only 75 students per year. So 300 students in the whole school. And it's very new. So the first class graduated in 2006. So it's like a whole bunch of crazy um, all at once. I, uh, I liked it okay. Um, but I also think it was the best possible school for me to go to. If that makes sense, I think that I am not a great fit with school. I've always kind of struggled with school. Um, and it, even I wasn't, so I didn't want to go to college because I hated school. I didn't really believe in formal education. I thought I would learn more uh, on my own. And I thought that it was also super expensive to go to school and not just the cost of going to school, but it's four years of lost earnings. Like you could be making money um, and instead you're spending money. And so I wasn't going to go to school, but then um, I found Olin and Olin. So at the time they don't do this anymore, but uh, they offered full tuition scholarships. So it was very affordable. Um, every every accepted student got a full tuition scholarship. They thought that formalized education was broken as well. They were like, it doesn't make sense for the modern era. Like the world has changed and we're still teaching people the same way. And engineers are still thinking inside the box and coming up with the same solutions to the same problems. So we want to innovate and do things differently. And they have a different grading system. And they, like a lot of the coursework is different. They don't teach... Um, like there's no concept they're like there's no calculus class at Olin like calculus is not taught separate from physics it's just one course where uh like physics is just applied calculus and calculus is just an abstraction of physics and they're just related to each other so very cool school it really it really um looped me in and just very recently I actually joined the board um and the reason I did that is I'm very excited. So Olin's impact it has had, honestly, has been so amazing. And it doesn't get really good credit for that, which is, is okay. Um, but it has changed the way the engineering education is taught at MIT, at Caltech, at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, um, as well as in schools around the world, right? More schools are doing the Olin way of having people try things first and then learning the theory behind it rather than having to learn the theory first before you ever build anything. Um, more schools are being more flexible about um, emphasizing communication and teamwork and other modern skills rather than just memorizing equations and things like that. So Olin had this big impact. I joined because I want to help shepherd in the next phase. It's like, how does Olin continue to innovate on education, um, specifically engineering education, but education more broadly as well? I think that we had our phase one and it was a big hit, but we can't just lean on um, you know, students should be able to work as a part of a team and to be able to communicate forever. Like everyone is now on board and like that's kind of done. Now we need to continue experimenting and experimenting is going to involve some failures, going to involve some successes. 
but we need to have the stomach to do that. And then when we do find things that work really well, publicize those more broadly so that we have a bigger impact. So you're working to shepherd in the next phase for Olin. Is COVID changing that for them or what's the repercussion yes, there? Dramatically. COVID's having a big impact. Um, but frankly, what, so we actually have a bunch of things happening at the same time. So Olin has had the same president that it started with. Um, which is not not so unusual, right? It's a new school, um, but we're basically doing our first presidential transition right now. So our next president um, starts tomorrow, July 1st. And so we're doing this whole new presidential shift and, and she's been selected to lead us into our next phase, um, as well as so we have the presidential shift and then we have COVID happening at the same time. And so there's a lot of things happening. And the approach that we've tried to take is like, look, Olin was kind of built for this in some way, right? Like it's supposed to be an adaptable, flexible, um, experiment oriented like curriculum that isn't rigid. And so what we've decided to do is try and take advantage of this opportunity and say, okay, school, like it's not going to look like it normally does. So let's lean into that. And can we use this as a time to innovate on what it means to do an online course or can we do hybrid online and offline courses like how do we preserve the teamwork aspect of olin that's so integral to the curriculum um in a world where it's not safe to spend like an infinite amount of time with other people or in close quarters with other people like how do we translate um communication in a socially distanced world so yes uh COVID is having a big impact and and we're looking at right it's like like the financial stability of the college and what is that going to look like if um, we can't have two students in every dorm room like we've had historically? How are we going to house them in a safe way? And so um, there's downsides, but we're also trying to view it not just as a problem, but also as an opportunity. Very cool. Is Owen still doing the 100% scholarship or is that changing? No, it's now a 50% scholarship. And where's the funding for um, that from? So Owen started um, with kind of the liquidation of the Franklin W. Olin endowment. And so the Franklin W. Olin Endowment for years was interested in improving engineering education and donated large sums of money to, you know, Stanford and all that. I mean, all the famous engineering schools across the country towards this end. And what they found is that their donations weren't really changing anything, right? It wasn't really doing anything. And so they decided to like refocus their strategy and they said, you know, people really aren't making better engineering education. We are going to have to do this our own. We're going to have to start our own school. And so they created the Franklin W. Olin College of Engineering and started it with an endowment from um, from the previous charitable endowment. And so when Olin first started, we had a $500 million endowment and we could run the school off of the interest and returns from the endowment and use that to further um, to like so that we didn't need to charge tuition. Then maybe familiar in 2008, there was a worldwide financial crisis. Um, what? and the endowment suffered quite a bit. And so we've had to reduce the scholarship from a hundred percent full tuition scholarship to a 50% full tuition scholarship in order to, uh, ensure the financial sustainability of the college. Well, even 50% though is pretty amazing, right? It was much more affordable than most private colleges. And on top of the 50% scholarship, right? Like Olin meets all demonstrated financial need through other financial aid. And so students are actually paying, um, quite little to go to to the school that's pretty cool you went from someone that you know didn't feel comfortable with education even yourself going and now you're contributing to a college 
Right. And now I'm on the board and like working towards like, well, and it feels more productive, right? To be like, okay, if engineering is like, if education is broken, let's work to fix it rather than just abandoning the whole enterprise. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about uh, working from home. We're working from home right now. What's your setup? What's your like working productivity hacks? What's your day-to-day routine? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I use, so, and I've realized when I was working in an office, I think this kind of got hidden in my schedule. But now that I work from home, it's become much more obvious to me. And I think my boyfriend has also really suffered from this. But when I wake up in the morning, I'm very anxious. And I'm very, like, I'm, like, anxious and I'm, like, on. And everyone in my family is like this. Like, when we wake up, like, so we don't sleep in in the mornings and it's impossible for us to fall back to sleep. Like, when we wake up, we are, like, up. We are morning people. We hit the ground running and, like, ready to go. And so I wake up, and I wake up, and I'm like, I'm, I'm in, you know, like, let's do it. Um, and so, so I, I have a hard time relating to this. I'm gonna ask some dumb questions. What time do you get up? Uh, I usually get up at like six thirty. Oh wow! And do you have coffee, or you're just awake? So I have coffee. Well, I usually make coffee around eight. Um, but I don't think caffeine affects me, and I don't drink coffee like to wake up. I drink it because I love the way it tastes. Okay. Interesting. All right, keep going. So yeah, I wake up and I'm like very stressed out. And so I do, well, I do what I consider to be the hardest work, which is writing my to-do list. And the way that I write my to-do list is I write it um, so that, I mean, I think of it so that like anyone could do it or that a robot could do it or that like you don't need to think at all in order to do it, if that makes sense. Um, Like I would never do... uh, I'm trying to come up with an example, but it's not, it's not high level things. It's like very low level, very tactical things. Um, And I come up with my to-do list like first thing in the morning. And then I do like all the stuff that I'm stressed out about. I do all that stuff first (laughs) so that it's like not bothering me the rest of the day. Um, And so I like send all those emails or like whatever. It's like, I get that, I get that done. And usually it's not big projects or things like that. Usually it's like, sending emails or kicking things off or like pretty straightforward stuff. So I do that first. And then the middle of my day is often, it's like a lot of video calls. It's a lot of like, you know, I want to like reply to my Slack messages quickly. And my email. it's like kind of like filler time, I really kind of think. And then at night is when I kind of do my head down work. And that's a lot of, I like go through, like a lot of it is, is going through my to-do list and checking things off that. And a lot of it is, you know, I always think this is so interesting. Like, I think the most valuable work that I do are not necessarily the most valuable, but the stuff that people appreciate most and seems the rarest um, is like the least um, intelligent or like the least sophisticated work that I do. Um, and so a lot of it, and it kind of just, and I think, I honestly, I think the reason that it's so valuable and so rare is just like other people aren't willing to do it. Like, it's just kind of boring and kind of sucks to do, but like, I just head down to it. Um, and so like an example of that is, um, one of the things I did recently at time is I identified this source. So, you know, a lot of people are on unemployment these days. And so I created a, a definition of here's every, like, here's how to know if an incoming ACH is unemployment or not. And it's different for each of the 50 different states. And everyone's like, wow, this is so interesting. This is so awesome. And they're like, Maya, you're so great. How did you do this? And the way I did it is I went through each of the 50 states and I said, for members who live 
in Alaska, what are the top um, sources of direct deposits for the past month? And then I looked at all of them and I was like, this one seems like it's unemployment. And I like wrote down the name, right? And then I said, okay, the next state in alphabetical order is Alabama. For members who live in Alabama, what are their top direct deposits? And I looked at them all and I was like, this one seems like unemployment. And I wrote that down, right? And I just did that for 50 states. And like, it's not, I mean, you could have an intern do this probably or anyone, like anybody could do this. Um, but I kind of think no one is willing to do this because it takes forever and you hit the like load button and the thing spins and you sit there and like, you know, I mean, it took several hours to do. Um, it's almost like it's a problem with being an engineer. I'd probably be more likely to write a program to figure that out with some type of artificial intelligence that takes two weeks than I would be to just sit there totally. for four hours, right? Totally. When I think everyone is there, well, and people ask me this all the time. They're like, oh my, how did you do that? Did you write a machine learning script? And I'm like, no, that would have taken two weeks. I just sat down for four hours and cranked it out and now it's done. And this is kind of my approach to, to like to many things. And I think, yeah, it's, it's funny, right? I think a lot of people assume, or they're like, can we automate this? I'm like, I don't know, maybe, but in the time it would take to automate it, we can finish it. Yeah, I like it. Brute force solutions, right? I just, yes. And I will, and it's funny, I think like that is my go-to is like working hard and just like brute forcing stuff. I think that has done a lot for me in my career, but at this point in my life, it's like maybe I should be brute forcing fewer things. And I think, and it's interesting, like my boyfriend's been a really helpful sounding board for a lot of this stuff because I'm always like, like whenever something seems like hard or annoying or like I don't want to do it, my immediate first reaction is I will try harder. Like I will work harder and I will get this done. Like anytime, anytime I feel bad, anytime I feel anxious, anytime anything, I'm like, I will work harder. And I can always depend on like working harder and having that work out for me. Um, but my boyfriend keeps being like, he's like, what if we didn't? work hard and there's some problems i'm like here's this horrible problem he's like what if we didn't do it <laughs> like w wouldn't that be fine um and i'm always like oh my god i have never considered that there are some problems like not worth working on where like the impact we get from it is just not worth it and maybe we just shouldn't do it um or that like maybe there's an 80 20 rule and we should just do this the easy way and that's that's good enough even though it's not perfect like it's just all these ideas that I've never even thought of because my whole life like my approach to stuff has been like just brute force it and get it done and get it out the door interesting so there's a couple things I want to dig in there uh so let's do the first one right so you describe the way you wake up and think about the day as like anxiety and stress instead of like you know you're excited to tackle the challenges or whatever bullshit somebody might say why do you feel like it comes from a place of stress for you and how does that motivate you? Yeah. Um, I guess the reason why I talk about anxiety and stress is I don't think it's a good thing. And I don't always think it right. Like I don't I don't know that it makes me happy. And I also think about um like I took what did I take? What is some anti anxiety drug once recently? I forget what it's called. But what happened, so I take this drug and the thing that happened immediately is like my face got so much longer because these muscles in my jaw relaxed and I was like, oh my God, I didn't even, like, I didn't even know that I just keep my jaw clenched 24-7. If you haven't seen your natural face in years. Yes. 
I didn't know that. Like, I literally didn't even know. I was like, what is happening to my face right now? And so now that's something I'm trying to be really conscious of. It's like, maybe I can kind of like relax my jaw a little bit. And I think it also, I think it shows up in like back pain. I think it like mucks up a bunch of my life. So, and, and I think honestly, like, I think there is a lot of stuff that I'm really excited about. And I do like so much of the stuff that I do with FinTech and with startup investors and founders and stuff like that. It's like, I love it. You know, there, there's nothing else I could imagine doing. And like, I'm right. And I've talked a lot about this too on Twitter and things like that, where it's like, if you are trying to fake it, like you will never, it's like, I'm listening to FinTech podcast in all my downtime when I'm like washing dishes, right? Cause like, I love it. I love learning this stuff. It's really interesting. So like a lot of what I do is motivated because I like to do it. But I do think that a lot is driven by um, like insecurity or proving myself or, or things like that, right? It's like kind of this, which I think is unhealthy. And it's hard to critique it too much because I think so much of that insecurity has like, quote unquote, gotten me to where I am today and has gotten a lot of things that people respect and admire about me. Um, but I don't think it's healthy for my mental well-being. And um and I don't know if it's worth it. You know, it's something I really, I think it's probably clear that it's something I really like struggle with and grapple with. Interesting. I can relate a lot, especially like how the anxiety leads to the brute forcing because I, I tend to brute force problems as well. And I, I thought for years that kind of my superpower was that I would do the shit work no one else wanted to do. And I would, um, you know, I would work a 15 hour day, seven days a week and not think twice about it. Right. Because it was kind of that. Like I just, really love what I'm working on and when I'm in the middle of it, it's something I'd rather do. Right. But then as I hit like I'm getting older and in my thirties now, it's like, oh wow, like I'm not I'm not a super well rounded person in a lot of ways. I'm just like really into tech. And so in the past several years I've tried to work on that. Right. Right, right. And it's like it's like, yeah, maybe I don't have to work so hard. And when I look at, you know, people are really impressed. They're like, you did this by this age and that by that age and all these other things. And for sure, I did that. And that's very cool and very interesting. But you have to recognize that, that it wasn't free, right? Like I didn't just have the life that my peers had and also this on top of it. It's like they got to do a whole bunch of cool stuff that I didn't do, right? It's like everyone else is doing it. And I was like, I'm working. And so there, there's trade-offs, right? And in some ways, I feel like now I'm like, guys, I'm not working that hard anymore. Like, let's hang out and play board games and things like that. But now my friends are, they're like married and having kids and they're like past that phase of their life as well. And so I feel like I kind of missed out in this um, cool part of my twenties. And it's like, well, it's a time of, it's a time of life. It's a phase of life and it's sort of gone forever. Yeah. But it's hard to say like, was it worth it? Yeah, probably. Cause it gives us a lot more security now than you would have otherwise, but you can't get that time back. Right. Interesting. Uh, so let's talk about that a little bit, actually. Work-life balance. How are you viewing that nowadays? Do you try to manage that? Do you just integrate the two? What do you do? Yeah, like that's always been something I literally don't understand the question. Like work-life balance, yeah, it's like it implies that there's these contrasting forces. And I often think, right, like people say, you know, they're like, what would you do um, if money wasn't a factor? Things like that, right? And if money wasn't a factor, right, like, I would probably build products with my closest friends. Like that's what I like. Like that's what I like to do. Like I love building stuff. I love getting stuff out there. I think it's so cool watching other people use it. You build, and software happens to be the tool set that I have to build things. So that's what I would do. And that's right. Like that's what I did with Pinch. Like 
I co-founded Pinch with my best friend, Michael Ducker, and we were building things together. And like that is, and then we sold Pinch to Chime. And now we work together at Chime building things. And it's like, that's what I would do if money wasn't an issue. And then Chime also pays me. I'm like, this is amazing. Like I would be at Chime even if they didn't pay me and they give me a salary every two weeks. It's incredible. So it's like, I really like that. And then, you know, I do a bunch of stuff on the side or what does that mean right i'm like advising companies and investing in companies and i do conference talks and things like that um and i I really i really love that too right because it's funny um people will refer to that as work and like i don't even know what the definition of work is like what's the definition of work i sure as hell don't get paid to invest in companies at least i haven't yet i don't get paid to be an advisor so i'm not doing it for money i am doing it for when I think people would say that I get somewhat like professional accolades from doing that. So maybe that counts as work. Um, but it's like when I was in college and everyone was not working, I feel like my life was so similar to what it is now, which is that we were talking about cool ideas. We were talking about the impact we wanted to have on the world. We're building stuff. We we're testing the products that our, you know, colleagues had built at, at the college, right? We were like, iterating and spitballing on ideas we were whiteboarding it's like it's my same life now um the stakes feel higher and everybody's budget is bigger but well i think the stakes feel higher for other people they don't feel that much higher to me it kind of all feels the same it's like it just happens that the numbers are all bigger and now we're raising millions of dollars to go pursue opportunities instead of scraping together a hundred dollars to kickstart a project do you feel like your risk tolerance has gotten like higher lower since i guess particularly since you've been acquired by chime and now that you're in kind of a day job situation it is interesting so it is an interesting question like i feel like the day job situation it basically it makes my like my null hypothesis or my base case like much bigger and so if i think about like if i think about say starting a company right like for a company that i start to pay me the same salary that time pays me, it feels like a really hard to reach bar. Like I'm like, I could, it's like, I could never imagine starting a company that's as successful as they would need to be to pay me the same salary. Yeah. And so I do think about that. um, But I don't know if that is a big driver for my decision-making, if that makes sense. Like we don't, we don't just live to make money. And in fact, in some ways, so for time, I, I feel, I feel, I mean, I feel like I'm a founder, like at heart. Like one, I feel like I'm not that great of an employee. Um, and I'm not extremely employable. Like everyone always asks me, they're like, Oh, what do you do? Do you work in product or marketing or engineering? And I'm like, I don't understand the question. Um, so I'm not good at like living inside of a specific box. I don't think I'm a great employee. I think I'm a mediocre, like fine employee. Um, and so. I think I'm a founder at heart. And in some ways, working at time doesn't necessarily feel like a contrast to being a founder. It kind of feels like it's giving me the space to catch my breath again, because it is very exhausting to work as a founder. But I just kind of feel like, you know, this isn't rational. This isn't like a logical pros and cons list or a way of evaluating it. But just emotionally, I just feel like founding companies is like what I have to do and what it's like, it's what I love and what I'm here to do. And even I like a lot of stuff about investing and a lot of people have pitched me on being a VC and maybe I'll do that at some point, but it's hard to imagine doing that next. It just doesn't feel like 
that is my calling. It really feels like starting companies is, I mean, that's what I like, what I really like to do. And not even, and it's specifically starting companies. It's not even like running companies or growing companies. I think it hasn't really happened yet, but I think my dream would be to start a company, like hire a great team, work towards product market fit, get it to like a place where the product resonates and customers like it and it's providing value and like the thing kind of works. And then honestly, pass it off to someone else to run it and grow it. Um, I really like that first part. It's not like I have grandiose visions of like running a billion dollar company necessarily. It's just that I really like the getting things up off the ground stage. That's cool. I've always been kind of the opposite. I kind of hate the uncertainty of trying to figure out the product market fit, but I love the day-to-day of like running a stressful startup type environment, right? Oh yeah. The like the running fast and the scaling things and just that. Yeah. And I think I do have a higher risk tolerance than, um, most people do and frankly the conversation that's happening in my head is like okay given that i was born this way or built this way or broken this way or whatever um how can i use that for force good if good for the world right it's like i have really high risk tolerance like great how do we leverage that to do good things and i think what i would like to do is experiment on ways of running companies that are better for employees and team members and people because like, since I have such a high risk tolerance, I'm happy to try things that might fail, but I can also try things that might work out. And if it is something that works, then I can evangelize it to more broadly outside my company and hopefully like improve the workplace for, for many more people than I could ever personally hire. That's a good segue into, I saw you had done some work with Roxbox to kind of revamp the hiring process. And I feel like there's a lot of issues with our hiring process in tech, especially for engineering. Uh, yes. Tell me your thoughts on that and what you tried. Yes, so much. I think engineering hiring is crazy. I think it is crazy what we do, and it's even crazy. Like everyone is desperate. I mean, just one one of the things is crazy. Everyone is desperate for engineers. Everybody wants more engineers. Everyone's like, we need more engineers. They're so expensive. Like the whatever. Okay, but the recruiting, like it's brutally. It's like the candidate experience is so lopsided in favor of the company. Like everything is on the company's schedule at a location most convenient to the company and in the, like so one-sided. And so we put these people through these like horrible day long, you know, whiteboard interview questions or things like that. And then we're like, oh, we'll let you know if we're going to give you a job offer or not. Right. Like it's not a good, it's not a good sales process. I'm like, God, no wonder you're having trouble hiring engineers like who would want to go through that and you have to pay people so much money to like basically be put through this like awful gauntlet um and i don't think that you necessarily it's like even that effective so what i did is very much um i think in an early stage company you really need to like you really need to work well with someone and that that is so much more important than any specific skill set because it's like people can learn different skills and they can be flexible. Um, and I mean, you should be hiring someone that can learn new skills because the world is going to change underneath you. Like I was just talking to this guy, um, Apple just did their WWDC conference or whatever. And this guy pings me and he's like, Hey, the product that I've been working on for three years, Apple just announced that they're doing it. Like I have no fear. This is going to kill me. And like, Sherlock. here's the thing. A specific instance of bad luck, but this type of thing happens nonstop to startups. COVID is an example, right? It's like you can't predict this stuff. It's going to happen. You're going to have to adapt on your feet. And like maybe he thought he was building a hardware company and he needs to build a software company or a community company or something else. 
And so like, if he has this whole team of hardware people who can only do that, it's like, you need to totally change what your company looks like um, in order to, to react to the world today and in order to be successful. So I really focus on hiring people who can learn new things and kind of on their own, right? Like I look for resourcefulness. Um, I look for, right, like being able to, to find experts and like gather, like garner the resources that you need to be successful at any given new thing. And so with engineer hiring specifically, I don't like our resumes. Um, what I do is I have, so for the screening, I have them send me something that's a built and it can be kind of in any form. It can be like a zip file of code. It can be a repository on GitHub. It can be a website or an app or something like that. It can be in like different forms. But I have them send me something that they build. I talk to them about that. If that's exciting. Then I just invite them to come in and do a project. Usually like, usually about 10 hours of work over like two or three days. And we just build something together. It's like, let's build something. And usually something that I try to make it something that is not critical to our company's operations, but that if we build it and if it works, I would love to have it. And I just say like, do we like working with each other? And it's a two way like evaluatory process, right? It's do they like working with me and do I like working with them? And then I make the decisions like if, if I'm, you know, if we're both excited about the idea of working together, then we come up with like what an employment contract will look like. Obviously it's only works at like super small scale and early, like there's a ton of reasons why it doesn't expand beyond that. Um, but yeah, I always found, I think that's like one of my, one of the reasons that I like being a founder is like the two things that I really like doing is I like fundraising and I like hiring. And so those are like good skills for, for an early stage founder. And I really feel like I'm very good at finding the like diamond in the rough or like finding candidates that, um, I don't know, like otherwise people are like, my, you like, how do I find candidates as good as you do? And it's like, well, you do every single thing differently. And you have to have so much respect for engineers. And I think, frankly, that a lot of businesses and a lot of companies don't really. And like, they can tell that comes through. Like, if you don't respect engineers, like, they can tell. Um, and if you think like, oh, engineers, you know, they shouldn't have a say on anything. They should just like do what we tell them to do and just execute on what we tell them to do. You can hire people like that, but they're not going to, it's like, they're not going to be that good and they're going to be quite expensive. It's being said, like, respect engineers as people who have good product ideas and good marketing ideas and are like smart, competent, full-fledged people. Um, one, I think you like attract really amazing candidates and, and I think as an early stage startup, like you don't have to pay as much to afford these really great candidates because you're giving them a workplace that they enjoy. Oh, but. I'd love to see more companies like experiment with this. The thing I've always hated is interviews are very synchronous, right? Like you're in a room with someone grilling you and there's this like fake pressure they put on that in no way mimics the real job. And if there was that kind of pressure at a real job, I probably would want the job, right? Like if there's right. five people in a room grilling me with programming questions while I'm trying to work during the day, <laughs> like I don't want that. Right. Well, and that's a, that, like, I mean, it's, like at Rockbox, you know, we didn't do it in quite the same way, but we would have like someone come in and they would just sit down next with our lead engineer and build something together. Like we had a laptop, they kind of had our code base and it was like, hey, this is what it would be like to work here. Is like the two of us would be sitting next to each other building this feature together. And like, you can be like, oh, I don't know what this is or like, how do I find it? You can ask questions and have a dialogue and like, I can look stuff up and you can look stuff up and we can have ideas and bounce it off each other. Um, and I really think, I, I really think in interviews, like people tell you who they are too. 
And that's my number one piece of advice for founders new to hiring is like, if you're, you know, interviewing someone, you're like, they're great in every way. And they have this great resume. And um, they just did this one thing that I thought was like a little bit odd, but I'm happy, you know, we can excuse the one thing. It's like people are on their best behavior in an interview. If they do one thing that's kind of odd, they're going to do that thing. Like, it's like, could you sit in the same room with them for 10 hours every day for the next several years while they're doing that thing? Because they're going to. Great. So let's change it up a little bit. Um, how did you get started with investing? That seems like a very different skill set than engineering. Yeah, it is. Um, well, and I, I'm not sure that, yeah, I'm very good at it. But frankly, um, Sequoia invited me to be a Sequoia scout in 2016, about four years ago. And um, that is how I got started is through their generous invitation. What does a scout do? Yeah. So I choose companies to invest in and Sequoia provides the funds. You can see how it would be much more accessible um, than it would be otherwise. And frankly, the real value that I have gotten out of the Sequoia program is actually not necessarily the investing piece but is um, the process of having to say like, oh, can I invest in your company? You're sort of crossing a transom and you're formalizing the relationship and you're like, you're kind of shifting it into a different place. And so it's only from being an investor with Sequoia's help that I've now also been able to be an advisor because I have more practice now, like it's not just casual coffee meetings and giving advice and things like that, but how to say like, hey, I've really loved working with you. Um, and I'd be interested in coming on as an advisor if you're interested in that and to have this type of structure. Like, I was very uncomfortable with that before and I didn't know what that would look like. But being able, like having the practice of saying like, this is really cool, I want to support you. Like, is there an opportunity for me to invest in one, right? Like doing that has also taught me to ask for advisor shares, um, which has been really, really valuable. What stage are the companies you're investing in? So my bread and butter is participating in like seed rounds. I do some earlier. I've been the first check into a couple companies and some pre-seed. And then I occasionally will do an A round. Um, but most often I'm participating in seed rounds that like have a lead investor. Cool. How do you find the advising? That has always seemed like probably the sweetest gig in tech with like pay versus work. But that might just be my naive perception. Really? I don't get paid to be an advisor. I get equity. Um, I guess I could be like a consultant or something, but I haven't, I haven't done that. Uh, it is, it's interesting. It reminds me, I mean, it's very similar to being on the board of my college and it's very new for me. And it's, it's very hard for me because for our earlier conversation, right. My approach is like, if there's a problem, I will just work hard and like working hard will solve the problem because like, just like no one can understand like how hard I will work. Um, as an advisor, you're not working on the company, right? So it's like we have, and same thing as being on the, the board of trustees for my college is problems come up and I'm almost like not allowed to work on them, right? Like that is not the context in which there's not a relationship that we have. So I can't just work hard. Um, and so it's, it's, it's really interesting to be able to like be a sounding board and to be able to support people. It reminds me a lot of managing employees, frankly, because um, that's sort of this balance of how to have people who are doing what I think is most useful and most productive and most valuable to the company, while also having them do what they find rewarding and fulfilling 
and what they think is a good idea. And it's like, where is the overlap there? And that's how advising is, is because there's sometimes when, you know, a problem will come up and the company is like, they have a, they have a plan and I would never do that plan, you know? And it's, it's not really my place to say I would never do that because it's not my fucking company. It's their company. And I, and I often say that I'm like, look, like, like, I mean, I was on the phone last night with a friend who, oh, he didn't like, <laughs> this is a portfolio company and his employees um, present decks at meetings. And he's like, can you send me the deck an hour in advance so that I can review it before we do the meeting? And they were like, no, I don't want to do that. I want to be able to like provide the, the like dialogue and lead you through this narrative process here. And he's like, yeah, but it's my fucking company. And like, you just have to do what I say. And I was like, I was like, look, I was like, I wouldn't do that. Like, you can do that. Like, that's the, that is the value of it being your company is like, you can lead your company in however you want. You can create whatever type of culture. If this is a culture where like people don't give presentations the way they want to. They give presentations the way the CEO wants to. That's fine. And there's a bunch of successful companies that have been built like that. I wouldn't personally do that. But it's not my company. It's his company. And I told him that. And he was like, and he was like, okay. He was like, yeah. I'm like, he's like, I appreciate the, 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 the pushback here. And he's like, I'll take that into consideration, whatever. And I was like, yeah. And you, and you don't even have to if you don't want to. But, but that's the kind of funny balance with advising is it's not my company. And, and further, I'm often reluctant to give people my thoughts because I think that starting companies is so hard. It's like you have to bring your A game. And even if you're bringing your A game, it's still probably not going to work. And so the worst thing in the world would be to bring your B game because then it's definitely not going to work. And I really think people could only bring their A game if it's like their idea and they're 100% bought in and there's nothing else they would rather be doing and things like that. It's the only way they can bring their A game. And so sometimes like there's some, like there's some, I have like really healthy relationships with some companies. There's some companies I advise where they kind of idolize me. And they're like, well, what would you do? And I'm like, I'm not even going to tell you what I would do because it's not like you are not my employee and it's not valuable for you to take marching orders and just go run with that because you're not going to bring your A game. And like, you have to bring your A game and this is your company to even have a chance at being successful. So I, I can work with you to, to like figure out what the best idea is and, and what would happen. But I'm not going to tell you what I would do so that you can take that as a to-do list item because that's definitely not going to work. Well, that for me. All right. So what is the favorite thing you've ever shipped? Ooh, my favorite thing I've ever shipped. Um, my favorite thing I've ever shipped, for sure, hands down. Rockbox, um, cool feature. And actually, I didn't even really, I mean, I didn't, from an engineering perspective, I didn't write most of the code for this, but my team did. Um, and what it is, so Rockbox is a jewelry rental service. You get jewelry in the mail, wear it around for a while, you send it back. Our customer base very much on Instagram. And jewelry really lends itself to Instagram, right? It's like it's a visual platform. Like that's where people are like finding cool ideas and falling in love with products and things like that. And so Rockbox has an incredible Instagram. It's like beautiful photos, beautiful jewelry, beautiful girls, the whole side, the whole brand, the whole lifestyle. And all the time people would comment on our photos and they would be like, I love this necklace. Like this is the coolest necklace I've ever seen. And I was like, you know, this is where our customer is. This is where our engagement is. And our Instagram profile is a huge asset. So like, let's just consider this an extension of the product. And I built a feature that if you commented hashtag wishlist on one of our Instagram photos, you would get the piece of jewelry in that photo in your next box. And it's the same type of thing. Like, I think if you ask, there's a lot of engineers, if you were like, oh, can we do this? They would be like, no, They're like, it's too hard. Like, 
We don't know what customers have with Instagram handles. We don't know what jewelry is in the photo. We have like limitations on our inventory. Like engineers can be very like narrow-minded. I mean, I know I just gave you the whole talk about respecting engineers, but sometimes they're extremely short-sighted when they like consider the feasibility of, of, of projects. Um, and so the way that we did this, so the way that we did this, right, is I was like, we don't know if it's going to work. We don't know if it's going to have product market fit. We are just going to fucking launch it and figure it out. Because if you just launch it and no one uses it, then it doesn't matter that it doesn't work yet. And if you launch it and people love it, then you have like a really big incentive to make it work. So when we first launched, I was like, just launch it. And I searched through all of our Instagram comments. And I found every time that somebody commented hashtag wishlist. And I looked it up in our customer user base. And I found the customer and I found the item of jewelry. And I built the, the only code that I built for this, the first piece of code that I wrote for this was um, just the ability to like reserve specific SKUs for customers, which we didn't have. So I built that. And we did that. And it was going really popular. And so I passed it off to our social media manager and he was doing that. And that got really popular. So then we hired a team of people in the Philippines to do this work and like built some tools around like managing Instagram comments and like flagging new comments and things like that. And then we built a team for our social or a tool for our social media team so that whenever they posted photos, they had to post photos through our admin site instead of directly on Instagram. Um, they would just comment which SKUs were in the photos. And then we built a tool so that our customers could add their Instagram handles to their photos. And then we built a tool that automatically um, DM'd people on Instagram if we didn't have their handles in our database and we couldn't find them. And then we, like, we just, it was only as inspired by the enthusiasm and the adoption that we kept building out tools until finally at the end of the whole day, like the whole fucking thing is automated and it works flawlessly and people are amazed. And I've never seen another company that does something like this. It does a really integrate experience. People instead, they're like, well, we have to own it on our platform and our and whatever, right? And I think this is the coolest feature that exists that you can just be scrolling through your Instagram profile and you can comment and you get that jewelry in the mail coming up soon. And if you're not a member yet, it sends you like a coupon and says sign up and then you'll get it in the mail. So favorite feature. Yeah, for sure. I say a pattern here where you do things manually and then automate later. Exactly. Yeah. And that's kind of the like the brute force plus the MVP plus the product market fit. And it's certainly always like I just gave you this cool story where it worked out. Sure as hell does not always work out. And it often doesn't. Um, like I did the same thing where people complain about shipping time at Rockbox. So I was like, I personally am going to hand deliver people's boxes the same day they put their return box in the mail. And so I did this in... um San Francisco, right? Particularly these office buildings in downtown San Francisco. I got on an electric bicycle and biked around San Francisco delivering boxes to Zoe, right? Oh, and I, I was like, you're complaining about shipping time. We are going to fix shipping time with brute force. So I did that. Um, people hated it <laughs> uh, for a bunch of reasons. Like they had a whole process to get things in the mail with USPS. They do not have a process to accept courier shipments from me. Um, it was too fast. They talked like it was all this stuff. People hated it, right? And that's actually how I found that I was really measuring the wrong KPI. And I think choosing correct KPIs is really important. So people complain about shipping time. So I made a dashboard. I was like, here's our average shipping time, and we need to get this number down as well as possible. It turns out that looking at average shipping time is not a good representation of the customer experience with their boxes. And with average shipping time, what I was doing with the same day shipments in San Francisco is I took people who had a three-day average shipping time and I brought it down to one. Turns out people like having a three-day shipping time. They just don't like having a 10-day shipping time. So really the behavior is more of a 
threshold experience. And so instead, okay. I measured... It's like cutting off that long tail. Exactly. So the um, new KPI was the percentage of shipments that were delivered by four days. And that was the real thing to optimize. So it's really the long tail experience that matters. And so we focused all on the long tail, on the 10 days, on the seven days. We would even, if it got too long, we were like, your box is taking too long. We don't know why. We're just going to send you a new box. We're going to send you a second box. We're going to overnight it. Like, it's just going to be there. Don't worry about it. You'll have two boxes. Like, enjoy the, the jewelry. It took too long to get you. So we focused on, like, those people. Um, and that's when we really saw, like, our NPS and our retention and our, like, all of our customer happiness metrics go up. That's awesome. What are you struggling with right now? This could be personal. It could be work. Both. Yeah. I mean, struggling with, I think it's kind of the same, like, the same things I'm always part of struggling with, right? It's like, and, and part of it is um, it's like around boundaries and it's around working hard. And it's, I feel like I need to go through this transition where I don't just address everything by working hard. And I set boundaries and I say no to some things, right? And I think um, I was talking to me on Twitter about this recently that I think part of the reason that I have gotten here, right, is I say yes to everything. I say yes to every single thing. I do all of the things. And I've always done all of the things. And it's interesting, like, people are like, oh, you're a co-founder of Rockbox when you're 24 and things like that. But I did things that they wouldn't have done, right? Like, when I started, it was a job that all of my friends were like, I'm too good for this job. They were like, I'm a product manager at Google and, like, I'm better than this. And, like, that it eventually ended up being something that they were, like, really interested. I'm like, well, it didn't start that way. And I did something that you weren't willing to do in order to get there. And so. I think now it's like basically my whole life strategy, which has gotten me everything, is no longer the right strategy for the next phase of my life. And that's really a struggle. There's a great book on this. It's called What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And it's basically like, it's more about, it's like the skills that make great in, like individual contributors don't create great managers and leaders and how you need to change those. And I'm going to do the same thing. So like, I need to start saying no to something because I just don't have enough hours in a day. And I'm not being the person I want to be. Since I say yes to everything and I don't have enough hours in the day to do everything, I am telling people I will do things that I don't end up doing. And like, that is the word. I like, I feel like that's not the person I want to be. I hate that. I really have to change that. And the real answer is like, I can't just say, oh yeah, I can help. I can do that. I can do that because I can't do everything. And so saying no to things, um, I have some crutches that help with that. Like, um, I think we scheduled this podcast with my assistant and she's, so amazing and she schedules everything with me and um one of the things is that when other people would like if I'm like oh what about Thursday and they're like oh it'd be really great if we could do before Thursday do you have any time on Tuesday I would kill myself to make it work on Tuesday like doing that like you know I'm like doing phone calls on the bus in between like just kill myself um but now my assistant she goes unfortunately my is quite busy on Tuesday like we don't have to be like Wednesday at the earliest. And I would just, it's so funny. I would never advocate for myself in that way, but she does. And she's almost kind of like teaching me how to set some of those boundaries and how to prioritize things. What is your production function? So the idea behind this is what, what is unique about you or what drives you in the ways you're driven that has enabled you to accomplish what you have and be who you are? Yeah, I don't, I am not familiar with this phrase, um, but I do think 
a lot of it is like insecurity or like particularly being right like I'm pretty uncredentialed like I went to this college that no one has ever heard of and then I worked at some startups no one has ever heard of and I founded right rock rock which like maybe some people have heard of and then I founded pinch which no one has ever heard of now I work at chime which historically no one's heard of people are starting to hear about chime because it's now it's not quite big but I just I'm just an employee there so I think I feel kind of uncredentialed and that I've always been you know the front I give is like fuck the establishment and things like that but I'm like kind of insecure about being uncredentialed in that way um and I think that that has been a big driver to like prove myself um that again right like is not that healthy but but here we are um and I also think like I don't know. I, I feel like the one of the things about me that has has got has like really helped is I think I'm very smart and I'm very like secure in that. Um, but I think everyone else is really smart too. And I'm very quick to um, if someone says something that doesn't make sense to me, I'm like, oh, this must make sense. It must make sense to them. But like, I am just not understanding the way in which it makes sense. And I'm very quick to like take take ownership of like I don't get this. Like I am not quick enough. To get this and I think people feel I, I honestly think it's like a form of respect for other people that a lot of people don't have and I think that's why it's like people can tell that I respect them and that kind of um has brought a lot of good things into my life awesome let's close it out with a couple of fun things Star Wars or Star Trek Star Wars but only only by happenstance I don't know I grew up watching I don't think I've ever seen Star Trek yeah I think I've seen like one of the movies on somewhere yeah um hobbies what do you do for fun away from the keyboard oh yeah um i love yoga i love meditating i love reading i read a lot um i love walking i know that sounds funny but i love walking um i love walking around with coffee i love walking around sometimes playing a podcast but sometimes just like cruising around um i walk well historically when i lived in cities i walked as like my primary form of transportation um, and also, like, my favorite way to spend a Saturday is, like, walking around, pick up coffee from the coffee shop, like, walk around the park, walk around the city, kind of do my thing. Uh, I see that you climb. What kind of climbing do you do? Indoor, outdoor, anything fun? Both. Yeah, nice. I do. So, sport climbing um, is the type of climbing that I do. And so, it um, sport climbing is when, either inside or, or outside, there's bolts in the wall that you can clip quick throws to and then you clip your rope in as you go up and so it's a little bit it's like I feel like it's the less respected form of climbing like traditional climbing kind of has more respect which is where there's no bolts in the wall but you place your own um, protective anchors as you go up um, I like sport climbing because I really love like I, I have a very pure love of climbing like I love the act of climbing itself I don't like all the shit around it most people I think like all the shit around it they like getting out into the woods they like this, that, whatever. I, I literally, I like the climbing part. I like the problem of like, how can I move my body in the most efficient, highest leverage way to solve this problem? It's very like mental and very intellectual for me. Um, and so it's like, honestly, like the reason I like climbing, it's like outdoors over indoors is just like less crowded. There are fewer people. I can focus more on the problem. Um, stuff like that. So I know nothing about climbing. Give me an elevator pitch for why I should try it. Yeah. So like I said, it's very, um, 
And you even like in, in bouldering, which is when you climb shorter things without rope, um, it's called bouldering problems because it's very much about problem solving. And what you do is like, so your goal is very clear to get to the top, right? But there's more and less elegant ways that you could do that. Like you could brute force it or, right? Like you could use angles correctly. And what I like about it is you might try, you might think, you kind of look at it and you might think, okay, I think I can hang on to that part. Like what I'm going to try and do is I'm going to try and get my foot up to here and then push hard on that foot in order to reach this with my left hand and I'll be pull up on my left hand to do this. And you try to, and it just doesn't work, right? And so you're like, okay, we have to do a totally new plan, totally new plan. Instead of putting my left foot over here, I'm actually going to push down on my right hand in order to like move my torso up a little bit so that I can like reach this ledge here. And like you do it totally new approaches and, and it's very, um, I feel like it's very strategic and it, it honestly, it reminds me of programming. I think a lot of software engineers rock climb and because it's very much the same way, like software engineering, like you could solve it. There's more or less elegant ways to solve software engineering problems. You can always kind of brute force it. Um, other people might look at it and be like, oh, this was a really clever way to do this. Um, it's very fast or it's very concise. And it's the same way with climbing. Like there's really fast and really concise ways of solving problems or there's like really ugly and messy ways. And it tends, it's like a combination of what you're working with, what you're trying to do, your skill level, your specific experiences, all that. And people, um, so it's very rude to give someone unsolicited advice in climbing culture. And so instead what you do is you ask people in advance, like you might see them struggle and you ask them like, do you want to just figure this out on your own? Like, or do you want me to give you a hint on how to solve this? And honestly, I kind of wish we had the same thing in software engineering. Like, hey, seems like you're like really struggling to like, to get this done. And it's kind of got, you know, it's like failing his test. It's got these errors. Like, do you want a hint or do you want to figure this out on your own? We definitely need that. Nice. All right. What, what games, video games, board games do you play? Love board games. I love card games. Love board games. I really like card games. Really like collaborative games. My favorite game, hands down, is Hanabi. I've played it like a thousands of hours in my life. Um, Hanabi is a collaborative game. You either all win together as a team or you all lose. Um, and you basically, you hold your cards facing away from you. And so you don't know what card you have in your hand. You really depend on everyone else in your team in order to like, guide you and lead you to the right direction do you know what cards to play because you don't even know what you're holding and so but you can also kind of remember stuff so i love hanabi i'm obsessed with hanabi um and i love that it's an exercise and like how well can we work together as a team to achieve this shared goal that's also like really 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 hard what uh what books have you read or listened to recently that you'd recommend yeah so well i loved i mean this is going to be this is going to be a weird one just from finish this book called ada blackjack that I loved. Um, it's not, you know, this is not business or investing or neuroscience or any normal recommendations, but basically I was looking at, well, I was looking at National Geographic as these exploratory cruises and I was like, this looks amazing. And there's this one that goes from Alaska to Norway over the top of Russia. And I was like, looks incredible. And so I was looking at the path there and it stopped by this island called Wrangel Island that is the highest density of polar bear nurseries in the world like full of polar bears crazy island north of siberia so then i got really interested in wrangle island i was researching that then i found out about ada blackjack who she went on this expedition in the 1920s with four guys to wrangle island and they all die 
and she survives by herself on the island. She was there for two years before she got rescued. Um, and it's an incredible book that it feels like fiction, but it happens to be nonfiction. And so it's like really, really interesting. And one of the things that it just, you know, it takes place 20, like a hundred years ago. And so many things felt similar to today, like the fake news thing, right? That was very prevalent a hundred years ago when it was hard to fact check things. Um, and even the way they talk about, you know, they were explorers. The way they talk about explorers reminds me of how we talk about founders today and how it's like this interesting thing, like these guys who are going to Wrangell Island. So they announced that they were going to Wrangell Island and they were instant celebrities before they had even done anything. They hadn't done shit. They were just about to get on the boat to get there. And like the press wanted to interview them and everything. And it's the same thing today with founders. Like you cannot do anything, but you can be a startup founder. And like people are interested and they think it's cool and they think it's high status. It's like, there's this weird societal interest in it, even if you haven't done anything. Um, and I think exploring was the same way. And I think, um, and it's funny because the explorers also talk about they're sort of un, unfit or unsuitable for any other occupation besides exploring things. Um, and it was just like always their their drive is like, what is the next expedition? Like, what is the next place to explore? Awesome. I'll have to check that out. That sounds really cool. Well, so seeing you mentioned uh, Taleb's books in the past, so I wanted to call that out because I, I believe his writing has probably influenced my day to day thinking more than just about anyone else. It's a uh, anyone that hasn't i love it um what are your thoughts on his writing yeah obsessed guy himself maybe kind of like off the deep end a little bit but i think he writes like such an asshole like i i kind of hate recommending it because it just his writing style or just his ego i don't know i feel like it looks poorly but um i i love it i feel like i read black swan and i was like this is what i have been thinking my entire life like that people are, and I also, I have a lot of criticisms around, um, I also really like this book called The Mismeasure of Man, which talks about how we're always trying to like measure how good people are or how smart they are or how well are, and like, you just can't do it. And I'm just like, and oh, every time I go to the doctor's office, they measure my blood pressure. This drives me nuts. Like, it cannot be that important, right? Like, I don't understand how this is, like my blood pressure, there's a, I don't know. So I think that I've, also, I've thought forever that we have a tendency to hyper-focus on the stuff that is easiest to measure, not the stuff that is most important. And I feel like he really gets at that with Black Swan. I think it makes people feel fundamentally uncomfortable to be like, the stuff that is going to have the biggest impact, we can't predict, we can't control. Instead, we have to be adaptable and get more information and change on the go. Um, but yeah, it's stuff that I've thought for a long time. So when I read his book, I was like, oh my God, this is everything um and i think being really conscious of you should optimize for the most important thing regardless of how easy it is to measure that i think that's really really important right like you can have your whole thing i think weight is a similar one people use weight as a measure of health but i think just because it's really easy to measure yeah totally agree i think skin in the game is probably the one i find myself referencing the most often both to myself as like how do you determine who to listen to and then also to other people and just about how do you give good opinions? How do you get good feedback? And you just can't do a good job of that unless you actually have skin in the game. So you need to, if you want to have an opinion, you need to make sure you have skin in the game somehow. Get involved. So my friend sent that to me after I read Black Swan. He was like, this is awesome. You're going to love it. But I haven't read it yet. So thank you for the recommendation because I need to read it. Do it. All right. Um, thank you for your time, man. This was just an amazing this conversation. This was so fun. Really it was great to jam with you. You take care. Have a good day.